What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Fortin. Here is what's ahead as the CDC changes its guidance on masks for the vaccinated. The reopening names are taken off. So is the lockdown trade dead? Jim Cramer thinks so. We'll explore what's next for these markets. Plus, digital nomads. If you can work for anywhere, you can make big bucks. We'll look at the cities that are paying folks bounties to move there. And investors are feeling good about GoodRx's acquisition announcement, sending the stock higher. But should investors worry about increased competition from Amazon? The co-CEO joins us in an exclusive ahead. But we begin with the markets and what's been a wild week. And Dom Chu has the numbers. It's still going to be down for the week, but it's all because of the beginning. The last couple of days have been very solid, and it's not just the reopening trades, broad-based for the most part in terms of the rise off of the lows that we saw earlier on this week. The Dow Industrial is currently up 340 points, 34,362, 41.71 the last trade for the S&P, up 1.5%, and outperformance of the Nasdaq Composite up by over 2%, 13,397 the last trade there. It is a Friday, so let's take a look at the sector action over the last week. In that time, it's been the consumer staple stocks. That sector is the only positive sector in the entire S&P 500 so far on a one-week basis. Meanwhile, technology and consumer discretionary, the biggest laggards. We know about that tech story. Amazon and Tesla, remember, are consumer discretionary stocks as categorized by S&P Dow Jones indices. They drove a lot of that underperformance in technology and consumer discretionary. That's the sector checkup. Usually I show you some stocks. I'm not going to show you stocks today. I'm going to show you commodities. Why? Because lumber, copper, and corn. Look at those losses that we're seeing right there. Corn is down 10% over the course of the last week. Copper is now down 2%. Lumber down 7.5% as well. Remember, all of these commodities surged on some of those inflation fears, supply constraints, growing demand, and whatnot. But they're now falling. So, yes, still very much near elevated levels. Huge gains that we've seen over the last year, but we're pulling back a bit. Could this be the top? Some traders are contemplating that right now, John. And the other question is, are these rising prices for commodities transitory or not? Back Mm. over to you. Yes, yes, that is a big question this week, Dom. Thanks. Uh, Markets are moving past, apparently, those inflation concerns and weak economic data today anyway, focusing on optimism about the reopening trade following those new CDC guidelines. That's why the Nasdaq, I guess, is up 2%. So what does the combination of all these factors mean for stocks? Joining me now is Hugh Johnson, uh, chairman and head of investment strategy at Hugh Johnson Advisors. Hugh, uh, what do you think? Um, Is this inflation thing transitory or not? Yeah, I definitely think it is. I do a lot of number crunching, Jonathan, and I do a lot of crunching on the inflation numbers. And we're going to have some troubling numbers, not only for the second quarter, not only for the month of April, like we saw this week, but for the coming months. But when we get past 2021, when we start into 2022, you're going to see much better numbers. Now, what do I mean? I really mean we're talking three to four percent year over year numbers for the time being. And that means, say, the next one, two or three months. 
And those are pretty uh, numbers that are going to be pretty disturbing. But when we get into 2000, late 2021 and 2022, the year over year numbers are going to come to 2.2%. That just simply says that this is all transitory. Hard to believe now, but as all my numbers point to that very, uh, that very uh, outcome. So uh, I'd be optimistic on it. There's a lot of stocks that have been really hit hard, hmm. hit hard because of concerns about higher inflation and higher interest rates. And those are the ones, the ones that have been hit so hard. Dominic referred to them. He talked about consumer discretionary. He talked about technology. That's where you can find some real value right now. And you won't have this value for very long. Well, Disney's taken a little bit of a hit year to date, and it's down another two plus percent today. But you like it. Why? You know, it's it's obviously everybody's troubled by the numbers and the streaming numbers. The number of new subscribers was a little bit disappointing. That was bad news. Of course, the other news, theme parks, uh, movies, that also was not good, primarily because of the long-term lockdowns and problems we've had with the U.S. economy. You know, in time, and this is the important thing, in time we're going to see the economy recovering. It's going to be uneven, not the same, not even month to month, but we're going to be seeing a recovery through the remainder of 2021 and 2022. And as we see that, it's going to show up in the numbers of Disney, and it's certainly going to show up in their earnings. So this is an opportunity, in my judgment, It's a little risky. I understand that. I understand the concerns about valuation. So maybe you take half a position now and wait a little bit for the other half of the position. But in my judgment, uh, opportunities in technology, consumer discretionary, and a company like Disney don't come along every day. And when they do come along, You've got to have a little bit of courage and step up and and maybe start to build your positions. Yeah, Hugh, that's what I always wonder about is the entry points, right? Because too often investors make the mistake of thinking, well, things are fairly valued the moment I start looking at it. I mean, but Apple's another one you like. It's still over a $2 trillion market cap. It had a nice run over the last year. Why is now a good time to buy it? Well, you know, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time Somebody said, or I told somebody I wanted to buy Apple or add to my positions in Apple, and they said, no, you shouldn't do it. Look at the big run we've had in the company. Um, Believe me, I I honestly, I've been adding to my positions in Apple continuously for about four years. uh, Given the, I mean, there's not much you can say. The cash position of the company, the cash flow in the company, the success of all of their products, which keeps getting better and better. um, It's hard to bet against Apple and against Here's another case in point. In the case of Apple, you see some, you get opportunities. Well, the opportunities come along. My experience over the last two or three years is you take advantage of that opportunity and add your position. Now, if you feel a little uncomfortable, whether we're talking about uh, Disney or we're talking about Apple, staging in is always a good idea for an investor, which really means buy a third of your intended position now, maybe wait a month for another third and a month for another third. Stage it in or dollar cost average your way into the position if you mm. feel uncomfortable. But believe me, you are we don't get these opportunities very often in an ongoing bull market. And the case for an ongoing bull market now is extremely strong. Well, speaking of adding to positions, we're going to add to our position on experts. Joining us now is Gautam Khanna, the uh, senior portfolio manager at Insight Investment. Well, let's talk again about uh, inflation and interest rates. You also think that this environment that we've been seeing is transitory, but something interesting happening in fixed income here, 
Now it makes more sense again, you say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're very much uh, in the same camp as the Fed. Uh, inflation is transitory. Uh, what has changed structurally in the U.S. economy? I mean, we spent the last decade with QE trying to prop up inflation, and we have COVID. Now, post-COVID, are we likely to see inflation that's materially above? Uh, perhaps not. Uh, I, would, I would caution uh, viewers to not extrapolate from short-term uh, prints uh, and make long-term decisions. And to your point earlier about uh, fixed income, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, if, if you remember the word TINA, uh, the, the term TINA, well, now perhaps there is an alternative uh, to equities. Uh, certainly prior to February, uh, the 10-year yield was below the dividend yield of the S&P 500. Now it's well above that. All right. Always good to have options. Uh, you know, as opposed to when there is no alternative. Gautam Khanna and Hugh Johnson, thank you. You're welcome. And now over to the municipal bond market, where investors have poured $39 billion into muni debt funds so far this year, the most over the same period since 2008. And in fact, muni returns have beaten those of corporate bonds and treasuries. My next guest points out that there is yet more money, nearly a trillion dollars, to be distributed to state and local governments, which is going to ring in something of a golden age for public finance. Let's bring in Todd Koslick, head of credit and strategy for Hilltop Securities. Tom, this is a lot different than what a lot of people were looking at a year ago when we saw all the business shutdowns, the concerns about local tax revenue, and the idea that even munis weren't safe. Has, is it stimulus that's really turned all that around? So it's a combination of stimulus, but even though there are many people who were expecting the worst and there were a lot of forecasts uh, through the end of last summer, even into the fall, that were uh, pretty negative, for the most part, overall revenues didn't really drop as much as many of us thought. Uh, but I think that so really uh, the demand is really up because credit quality as a result is assumed to be strong. But also, you know, that tax advantage from municipals is something that uh, folks are really considering also. Now, even even in Illinois, right, we're, we're seeing uh, three year bonds sold at year yields near one percent. Illinois has got issues. So th- that makes me wonder if, you know, the, the embrace of munis on this side of it now a year later might be overdone. In the near term, you know, near term meaning next year or two, maybe three, one of the things that we're expecting is, you know, something like a golden age for public finance. There was $350 billion, well, I should say there is starting to be $350 billion of federal relief that's going to flow through to state and local governments. And then there's another at least $300 billion that's going to flow through to other sectors like the school districts and higher education. Illinois is going to get a, a decent chunk of that $350 billion, and then they're going to get an advantage from some of the higher education money, K-12 through money. So I think that in the near term, this is one of the reasons why a lot of folks are expecting that credit quality overall is going to be pretty good in munis. So is this a golden age or is it a golden moment? I mean, how long is this going to last? What should investors kind of think about or worry about uh, as they examine munis right now? That's a good question. From my perspective, I think that for the next year or two, we're not expecting uh, downgrades to outpace upgrades. I'm expecting that upgrades are going to be outpacing downgrades for the next year or two. Uh, That being said, investors need to remember that there were several 
uh, well, I shouldn't say several. There are a handful of meaningful states and some cities that were structurally, bal- structurally imbalanced before COVID. Uh, I am not certain that this is going to be uh, enough for them to be able to correct those structural imbalances that are, you know, years, in some cases, maybe even decades in the making. And so, um, but in the near term, I think that overall, uh, downgrades, excuse me, upgrades are going to outpace downgrades. So very often there's a political backdrop to this. Are there particular triggers, signals, elections that you would be watching, balance of power to determine when this golden moment might be over? You know, I think that, uh, I think that it's a lot, that couple of year period is locked in right now. Uh, the runoff elections in Georgia uh, really uh, helped decide that. And I think that it's going to be up to how it is that state and local governments, other entities, uh, plan and then spend this relief money and make decisions going forward that's going to really help determine that. All right. Tom Koslick from Hilltop Securities. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now coming up, cities across the country paying people to move to their state. Some giving up to $20,000. We're going to look at where, why, and who is eligible. Plus, businesses are responding to the CDC's new mask guidelines in very different ways. We've got details. The exchange is back in two. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dozens of cities are offering cash incentives to workers who are willing to relocate while they continue to work remotely. Diana Olick joins me now with more on the so-called digital nomads. Diana. Yeah, John, there were a few of these programs before the pandemic, but it is now suddenly taking off and demand is off the charts. Almost exactly a year ago, when COVID was at its worst, Lindsay Marvel packed up her Brooklyn apartment, bought a car online, and drove to Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're just in the survival mode, and I just, I just was terrified. A Tulsa nonprofit offers remote workers $10,000 to move in. A year later... It's been a blessing. I can't, I wouldn't want it any other way during a pandemic or any other time. Lindsay recently bought this home thanks to the $10,000 and to the fact that Tulsa is much cheaper than New York. She's also met a large network of so-called digital nomads like herself through the program. I think I've made more friends in this year during a pandemic than I ever have in college or any other time you're supposed to be connected with many people. Tulsa is one of a growing number of cities offering cash incentives to remote workers. A new program in West Virginia is offering up to $20,000. West Virginia is the house that built me. 
The $25 million program is funded by executive chairman of Intuit and state native Brad Smith. He says he's capitalizing on two new trends. The first is a shift towards remote work, and the second is a shift in geographic preference to more rural settings. And those happen to intersect perfectly with West Virginia's most valued assets, which are our welcoming communities and our outdoor recreational amenities. Those communities and amenities are in big demand. The new program will open with 50 slots, but has already received over 7,000 applications. The goal over seven years is to attract 1,000 new residents who will bring their purchasing power while not taking up local jobs. The same strategy behind Tulsa's program. Because we are from cities like Brooklyn, Seattle, we don't really have a sense of what we're supposed to pay for something. I mean... And so people are willing to pay a little more. Because the return can be invaluable. I know I've made the right decision. Now, since moving to a small town might be scary for some people, these programs are trying to ease those fears. They're advertising things like average wireless speed, median home price, distances to a major airport, shopping center, even the distance to the local tractor supply. Because, John, you never know at the last minute when you might need a tractor. It's almost like attracting businesses, except not with tax incentives. But I wonder, Diana, is this easy come, easy go? Are these people going to stay or is there a cohort of the digital nomad that might go chasing incentive to incentive, moving from Tulsa to West Virginia and then so on? Well, actually, a lot of the programs say you must be a resident for a certain amount of time. It Mm. varies program to program. But if you look at someone like Lindsay, she bought a house. She intends to stay there for the long term. And she's seeing a lot of the people that she met through the program who are also buying homes. They may use it perhaps as their primary home and then have a second home somewhere else. But they do like the idea of staying. And that's the point of these programs is to get people to stay. Yeah, community, doubtless a big part of that. Diana Olick, thank you. And now coming up, it wasn't looking so good before the open, but shares of GoodRx rallying on acquisition news. We're going to speak with the co-CEO about that uh, and the threat coming from Amazon. The exchange is back after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now higher across the board. You can see the Dow up 350 points, S&P up almost a percent and a half, and the NASDAQ leading that up 2%. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. DoorDash leading the flexible economy stocks higher, and it's on pace for its best day ever. Despite posted a wider-than-expected loss in its most recent quarter, revenue was strong. The company delivered uh, guidance for 2021 after revenue tripled from the previous year. Shares of Zoom Video also heading higher. Uh, That stock is leading the NASDAQ 100 today on pace for its best week since February as it tries to break a three-week losing streak. And AMC, the movies, on pace for its sixth straight day in the green as the reopening trade gains steam. A move higher today would be its longest daily winning streak since the summer of 2019. Now to Rahel Solomon for CNBC News Update. Rahel. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. The city of Columbus, Ohio, will pay a $10 million settlement to the family of Andre Hill. 
He's the black man shot to death by a white police officer last December. Hill was coming out of a garage holding a cell phone. It's the largest settlement of its kind in the city's history. The police officer, meantime, has pleaded not guilty to murder charges. A National Security Council spokesman had nothing to say when CNBC asked him today if the U.S. government is responsible for forcing the dark side hackers to close down their operations. Today, the criminal group said that they had lost access to their digital infrastructure, including the ability to accept payments. Darkside is the group believed to be responsible for that cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline. And testimony on Capitol Hill today, the U.S. Cyber Command Chief telling lawmakers that cybersecurity is national security. He says that the government needs to do more as attackers become more sophisticated. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, a look at how the Colonial Pipeline attack has highlighted vulnerabilities in the nation's supply chains. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, it certainly has, Rahel. Thanks. And now coming up, a check on check-ins, unmasking new business policies, uh, Musk's influence on crypto prices, and Target pulls Pokemon cards for safety reasons. That's all ahead in rapid fire. But first, it's a Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. Retail ramps up with a big week for earnings. With Walmart, Macy's, TJX, L Brands, Kohl's, and Foot Locker reporting. The sector's up 37% so far in 2021. Can the run continue? Lordstown Motors releases first quarter results on Monday. All eyes will be on its electric pickup orders, with shares down 60% since it went public. Meanwhile, Ford is set to unveil the Lightning. It's all-electric F-150 pickup. The street will be watching the Fed meetings on Wednesday for any change in its view on inflation. McDonald's holds its annual shareholders meeting. And there are two big names set to go public. Website building company Squarespace will begin trading via direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange on Wednesday, while Oatly's NASDAQ IPO is Thursday. Plus, we'll get a read on housing with the National Association of Home Builders survey. Housing starts in existing home sales for April. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Bob Pisani, Deirdre Bosa, and Casey Newton, platformer editor and a CNBC contributor. First topic, shares of Airbnb. They are higher after beating first quarter estimates and an upgrade at Wells Fargo. The bank lifting shares to overweight, saying Airbnb is the strongest play on the future of remote and hybrid work. CEO Brian Chesky told Deirdre Bosa he expects demand for longer-term stays to keep increasing post-pandemic. Fewer and fewer people are being tethered to one city to live and work. And so as people become more flexible, more and more people decide that staying in Airbnb is actually a great option for a week at a time, a month at a time, or a few months at a time. Chesky also said he expects a travel rebound unlike anything we've seen before. Deirdre, is his gauge good this time because i mean a year ago they were laying off people thinking it was it was you know winter was here but they seen quite a snapback yeah they have but you know what they laid off people in the corporate office we've seen in their financial results that hosts have actually stayed pretty steady on the platform Despite them seeing, you know, a huge leg down in the early days of the pandemic, it did bounce back quickly, at least domestic travel. So, you know, he says that they are ready for a hot vac summer and they have enough supply online as even as their competitors try to poach some of their super hosts. (laughs) Um, And, John, we talked about this in Tech Check, that whole idea of 
living somewhere in an Airbnb for the longer term, more than 28 days, that made up nearly a quarter of bookings in the first quarter. And that, to me, was sort of the most remarkable piece of this. What kind of opportunities does that open up for Airbnb in the future? And that's what I think that that note was talking about as well and referring to the longer term opportunity here. Well, I mean, if you can do the Diana Olick thing and get the city to pay you for moving there and then use it to pay your Airbnb, I don't know, that could be a good hustle. But Bob Pazami, it it seems like we're in between narratives here, perhaps, because it it seems like the reopening trade is working. So people think that the pandemic trade isn't. But look at DoorDash. I mean, up 20 percent. Yeah, it's but uh, look, I love Airbnb. I'm a user of Airbnb. But look what's happened to it. Uh, What was it? 220, 230 in February. What's 140 now? It's lost 30 percent of its value. And for good reason. When interest rates go up, these companies that don't make any money get clobbered. So you're talking about, John, I think it's an $85 billion market cap. There's only like 80 companies that have a bigger market cap and they make $5 billion a year and they're not going to make any money for several years. I mean, maybe next year they'll make eight cents or nine cents. So do the math here. We've got a P.E. of a thousand or something on this. When interest, I'm I'm not joking, it's a thousand P.E. When interest rates go up. Inflation goes up. These kinds of growth companies get clobbered. And it's a wonder it's not even down more as much as I love, love the product. Well, when when the E is small, you end up with those uh, massive P.E.s, Casey. I guess the question is, I mean, you're at Platformer, so let's talk platforms. Is Airbnb going to have the sort of valuable platform that allows it to just make huge amounts of money in the future like we've seen the likes of Amazon do? Look, I think there is a lot of room for optimism here. You saw it in their first quarter numbers. A lot of people are already living this lifestyle. They didn't wait to get vaccinated. They just got on the road and started working remotely. A lot of American employers have said you're going to have the rest of this year and not have to come back to the office. And I think long term, these sort of hybrid roles are going to be very, very common. And if you're a white a white collar Silicon Valley worker, it's going to be really exciting to you to go work from six or seven different cities a year. So I don't think it's wrong to bet on the future here. Deirdre, another thing about this is that the costs at Airbnb, particularly marketing costs, have come way down during this time. When we talk so much about how much companies have to pay in tolls to get through Google, et cetera, the fact that they don't have to pay so much is a big deal, right? Yeah, and their competitors are spending more. So, you know, every time I talk to Brian Chesky, I ask him, do you still feel comfortable with where your marketing costs are? And again, this quarter, he said, yes, we think we have a pretty good thing going. They get 90% of their traffic organically. He talks about how he's turning hosts or guests rather into hosts and how this next evolution of supply and demand is really interesting. He says that because of their discovery features and the data that they have, they're able to actually direct people to where there is supply. So say someone wants to travel to Paris in September, they could say, oh, look, there's actually better prices in October. And I think that's sort of the value of what they've built over the last more than decade that separates them from some of the competition. And for all those people with flexible vacation days, I guess that works. All right, next, some companies are unmasking new policies in the wake of new guidance from the CDC. Win Las Vegas saying fully vaccinated guests and employees can stop wearing masks. However, did note to CNBC that it's going to still require non-vaccinated guests to mask up. On the flip side, Delta Airlines doubling down, mandating all new hires be vaccinated before starting work and adding it will likely bar current staff refusing the vaccine 
from boarding international flights. So we should note the CDC still recommends masks for anybody entering airplanes, public transit, or healthcare facilities. Bob, um, this is complicated because it gets into you know the, the whole yeah. issue of should people be required to show proof of vaccination whether it's in public places where certainly that's not being done or even in private places is going to cause the same kind of dust up that we saw in stores over masks in the first place. Well, I'm, I agree with you. I'm baffled why the CDC made this announcement, which I support, obviously, but didn't say that there should be a requirement of proof of vaccination. They didn't. I don't understand why. I work at the New York Stock Exchange. I had to show them proof of vaccination, the card, to go work there. I went back on Monday, and that was one of the requirements I had to do. I gladly did that. That made a lot of of sense to me. Um, So I think that we need to do that in the future, and most companies are going to require that. One thing that's interesting, John, is just mentally on the street, you can see some people are now starting not to wear masks. I get a few dirty looks because i walking around recently without a mask. Uh, there's a lot of mental adjustment that's going to have to be made, and there are some people that, you know, mentally they want to stay masked for a long time, if not physically, and so there's a real kind of mental adjustment that's starting to uh, occur now. Casey, are, are you in California right now? Yeah. 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 So the dirty look that you get in California is if you're not wearing a mask. But there are other places in the country. If you're in a red, you get a dirty look for wearing a mask outside. So you sort of have to pick your poison, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's become a culture where obviously people have very deep, like almost religious feelings about this stuff. I was talking to a source at Amazon yesterday. There's some concern there because Amazon has started asking, are you vaccinated or not? Some employees don't want to give up that information. Um, but as we can see, you know, companies can mandate essentially that they share it. So I think there's going to just be a ton of anxiety that comes out of this. But look, it's coming out of a massive 14 month trauma that we've just all gone through together. I think it's very understandable. People are going to have sort of strange and mixed feelings about sort of coming out the other side of it. Deirdre, curveball here. You probably didn't ask this, but I wonder to what degree companies even like Airbnb are either recommending or not recommending that hosts ask about the vaccination of potential guests, what what they're doing corporate policy wise. I mean, I, I suppose this plays into those platforms as well. John, it's a good question because we've seen tech companies come out on social issues, not just tech companies, but a lot of corporate America. So why can't they come out on this vaccine mandate and, you know, not just ask, but require their employees and potentially even customers to show proof of vaccination? And I know this is such a tricky, tricky topic, but if they take stances on things like uh, voting rights and, and other things, they have to consider how, where does a vaccine or mask mandate fit into the social welfare of society? I'm not making a statement on that. Let me be clear. Um, but it's a good question to ask, especially when you have sort of progressive companies, especially in Silicon Valley. Well, you know, that, so everybody don't come for D. She wasn't making a statement. But here's a tip. If you decide to make a statement, do on the other hand and do the other side. And then people won't know which, which way you're really coming down. Okay, next. Another day, another tweet from Elon Musk moving the crypto market. The price of Dogecoin surging more than 40 percent after he revealed he's working with the tokens developers, whoever they are, to improve transaction efficiency. And it looks potentially promising. But Dogecoin still negative for the week, reeling along with Bitcoin after Musk's last Twitter bomb two days ago, saying Tesla would no longer accept Bitcoin as payment due to the, quote, insane environmental impact of mining it. And Casey, I would add that he called Doge a hustle, ha ha, on SNL. 
and it tanked over the weekend. So, I mean, here's a guy who's just moving crypto all over the place. What a store of value. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty clear at this point that if you've made a huge bet on Doge, it is just pure gambling. There are no fundamentals here to discuss to make a theory of the case. But look, the one thing we have learned over the past few months is that there are a lot of Americans who love to gamble in this way. And the risk of losing uh, is, you know, can, something that can be accounted for by the potential thrill of, of winning. So as long as there's people still see a huge upside in Doge and these other meme stocks, I think we're going to see a lot more of them. Mm. All right. And finally, finally, uh, Target is halting sales of Pokemon and sports trading cards in stores due to safety concerns. It comes after a Target in Wisconsin was forced to go on lockdown after a fight in the parking lot over trading cards. The value of collectible cards has soared during the pandemic. A rare Charizard Pokemon card sold for more than 300,000 bucks at auction, while a Michael Jordan rookie card, which is even better than a Charizard, recently sold for more than 700,000. Uh, Bob, they're taking a cue from my kids' elementary school, which also banned Pokemon cards. But these are adults fighting in the parking lot over Pokemon cards, which makes me wonder, is the NFT craze crossing over into the physical world? Are people with crypto bucks perhaps? I mean, I don't know, but it, it seems like no matter whether you're talking about digital markets or physical, people just need to grow up. Yeah, well, desire for collectibles. There's there's a couple of cross currents here. Number one, there's, there's really three trends here. First is people got money because they're staying at home. Number two, there's growing influence of social media influencers. Number three, there's growing desire in general for people to have collectibles, to uh, own physical objects. Uh, NFT is separate, but it overlaps a little bit. Uh, and we're seeing this in, in uh, comic books. We're seeing this in uh, baseball cards. I collect old 60s rock posters. Those posters have gotten more expensive, too. Not like Pokemon, but you get the idea. People want to own some physical object. There is some obsessive aspect of Pokemon, obviously, because there's, there's games that are involved. It's more than just a, a collectible. Uh, there's, there's gaming elements associated with this. But I'm very agnostic on pricing. You might say, what kind of idiot is going to go out and buy, spend this much on Pokemon? Well, uh, <laughs> who's going to do it on NFTs? Who's going to do it for comic books? Somebody paid $3 million for the first Super. Superman the other day. I mean, you have to be agnostic about the pricing and acknowledge the psychology of what's going on. That's the way to do it. Otherwise, you'll, be, you'll go crazy screaming at people. D, what do you think would happen if Elon Musk tweeted about his favorite Pokemon? Huh? Work with me here. <laughs> I don't even, my goodness, I don't even want to think about that. I mean, you'd probably get a rush. Some Whatever exchange he was listing it on would probably crash, but it really speaks to sort of the speculative nature that we're living in right now and that collectibles are also seen as investments. And that's why people get so heated. Um, John, before you go, though, I do just want to mention one thing. I'm looking at Casey's background. He promised he would upgrade it. Casey, you got five out of ten from Room Raider. Where's the orchid? Where's the books? There's another bottle back there. I got to call you out. Like, I mean, are you, are you drinking a new beer or was that always I've there? You know, if, if CNBC could just send people to my house to fix this, for I will pay any price. Does somebody solve this nightmare for me? Trust me, you don't want CNBC sending people you to your some... house, Casey. That's not, that's not the move. So, you know, take that back. You need some collectibles, Casey. <laughs> Get some collectibles so behind you. Now. Get some Pokemon cards. Your room raider will go to 10. 
or, or see if you can bum one Bob, of those classic rock posters. posters off of Bob. That's, that's a good look. That's a good look. <laughs> look at my room, Raider. All right. Uh, Excellent rapid fire. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bob Bazzani, Deidre Bosa, and Casey Newton. And now coming up, this fintech stock is up 75% over the last year. The name and what's driving the gains next. The CEO is going to join us live. And don't forget, you can watch us live using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Cloud software's cloud is real, particularly as small and medium-sized businesses look to optimize how they manage their operations. More companies adopting services like Build.com. That stock is on Cloud9, up nearly 75% in the past year. And joining us now is founder and CEO of Build.com, Renee Lassert. Renee, good to see you. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in getting insight from you following this latest CDC news, because so many small businesses have been under such distress over the past year, and this opening up uh, presents a, a lot of possibilities. What are you seeing in the differences in small business performance, depending on how open different areas of the country are? Well, thank you, John, for having me. And it's great to see you again as well. You know, the SMBs, you know, for them, every month is Small Business Month. This May is the SMB month. But it really, when you're an SMB, and I grew up around SMBs, every day you kind of live and breathe it. You kind of work hard to actually make a difference in the world and you work hard to actually bring your service and products to customers. And so what we've seen over the last three quarters is that they're getting back to work. Uh, Some examples here is the year over year growth in our transaction volume. Three quarters ago was 10%, then it was 16%, then it was 19% this past quarter. So businesses are doing more transactions. The total dollars moving on our platform was up over 44% year over year. And this kind of gels exactly with some data that we've used and gotten from a research that we did with Wakefield to over a thousand SMBs across the country that said that they were focused on driving new products. 75% wanted to focus on new products. 80% said they wanted to focus on digitizing their back office solutions as a result of COVID. Mm. And and then there was 85% that were just very focused on, on revenue addition. This is so different than a year ago. A year ago, we did a similar survey, and we got everybody focused on cost cutting. And so what you see and what we're seeing across our base is that business is getting back to work. They're, they're excited. They're ready to open back up. And businesses are actually making a difference and making, making it so that you know, the economy can keep on going. And cost management is still important, though, I imagine. And that's why you guys are buying Divi for more than $2 billion. Um, tell me where that fits into your, your technology portfolio what you hope it provides to customers and, and how that's going to expand your revenue possibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. something we're super excited about. So, you know, when we look at overall B2B spend, uh, AP and the platform that we have on the AP side probably constitutes around 70% of the, you know, the B2B spend. But that remaining 25 to 30% up there that is B2B spend, a lot of that's on corporate cards. And this is a, you know, a spending program solution that's super elegant, super modern, that just really helps businesses manage all of their spend across their t e So not as much in the past year, but definitely gearing up. But also people are using corporate spending cards to really manage other expenses that are recurring. That might be digital ad spend that they're doing in marketing. Hmm. It might be other services like that. And so what we see with Divi is a simple, elegant solution that customers love. And we're fortunate because 
with 115,000 customers on the platform, we're able to go talk to them and understand what they're doing. We're able to see the data and transactions on our platform about which corporate cards they're using. How? And what we found is that a lot of them were using Divi. And when we oh. talked to them, we found out how happy they were. So, so knowing that customers were asking for it and knowing the success, that's why we did it and we're excited. It sounds like you had a decent amount of overlap then between your existing customer base and Divi. And that's part of what drove this. How is this rationale going to work then? Is it bigger share of wallet or is there also a significant portion either of your customers who aren't on Divi that you think you're going to be able to cross over and then and then vice versa? It's a great question. So if we just step back, still the dominant form of how people manage their financial operations is paper. So we have 115,000 customers. There's six million businesses. You know, we are champions for all of them. We want all of them to have a simple financial life as they can get. And so what we see is that, you know, there are, you know, we have, you know, thousands of customers that are using spend management out of the 115,000. And so our focus is really, how do we get all of them in one solution? And what we hear from customers is that they want a one-stop shop. They want the ability to be able to manage all their B2B spend in one place. They want to be able to do it from their phone. I've said oftentimes that we take the back office and put it in the back pocket. And so the cross-sell opportunity is real. We think that there are plenty of customers on our platform that will want the solution that Divi has. And we think there are customers on Divi's platform that will want what we have. And that's because what we both hear from our customers is they want this one-stop shop. They want one solution. They don't want a ton. They want one. Well, that cloud and mobile part of the digital transformation for small and medium business, I think, really got pushed during the pandemic when business realized that they need efficiency uh, like never before. Rene Lassert, founder and CEO of Bill.com. Thank you. Thank you, John. Coming up, shares of GoodRx higher right now. The stock has had a rough year so far, down 25%. We're going to ask the co-CEO what's been holding it back. Is it earnings? Is it merger news? There's a threat from Amazon. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. GoodRx out with first quarter earnings. Revenue grew 20% year over year with 5.7 million monthly active consumers in the quarter. The company also announced the acquisition of discount drug company RxSaver. The stock up about 8 and a third percent right now, but down nearly 40% over the past year, a year where Amazon's moved deeper into the healthcare space. Let's talk about all of it with Doug Hirsch, GoodRx co-founder and co-CEO. Doug, good to see you again. Now, you're experiencing kind of the flip side of really high valuations that the market was giving you, even though these results uh, have also been coming in pretty strong. Uh, tell me first about RX Saver and where that fits into the portfolio of offerings that you have across prescription and telehealth. Sure. We actually had a fantastic quarter. We've been delivering across all fronts. And one of the things we did in the quarter was we acquired two companies, actually. We acquired RX Saver, the company you mentioned, as well as a company called Healthy Nation. Healthy Nation is focused on video content, spectacular video content created by doctors and healthcare professionals. RX Saver is a complimentary business to ours, uh, which has some great talent, some really amazing people we brought on board, and some great marketing advantages for us. And so, again, it helps us uh, get to our mission of helping people get the care they need at a price they can afford. Um, great opportunity, and we took advantage of it. Is Healthy Nation sort of a, a, an answer, an expert answer for WebMD? You know, for people who shouldn't just be paranoid figuring out their own thing, but actually going to sourced content from doctors? Yeah, so GoodRx is producing, uh, has been producing amazing content for years. We have incredible PhDs and pharmacists and doctors who are producing amazing content, but it's all written. And a lot of consumers like to watch video. 
And this video content is just incredible. And more importantly, or not more importantly, but just as importantly, we have lots of manufacturers who would very much like to talk to consumers. And we would like to be able to give manufacturers the opportunity to put their brand in front of consumers. We have just incredible inbound interest from them. And so we can combine great content with an advertising platform. It's a win-win for everybody. And we're really, really excited to get that content in front of more people. It sounds to me like you're moving in a direction of diversification as you address the healthcare customer because you've got prescription, you've got telehealth, now you've got you know, more content and advertising platform. Talk to me about how that's playing out as we see uh, an economy that appears to be shifting toward reopening and maybe not so much telehealth, but perhaps more prescription as people go back face to face with their doctors. Yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, we are seeing a transition from, you know, the COVID era, of course, back to a, a reopening of the economy. You know, the CDC just yesterday said everyone doesn't have to wear masks anymore if you're vaccinated. And so the, we're, we're, we're transitioning from the COVID crisis into the other healthcare crisis, which is that people just simply can't afford their care. And we're going to meet them with incredible products and services. GoodRx Gold and the KroGoRx Savings Club. We have almost a million subscribers now who are paying us on a monthly basis to get incredible prices, not just for prescriptions, but for telemedicine and for mail delivery. So we're feeling really, really confident that we've got a wide variety of solutions for, for both consumers, for brands, uh, you know, for healthcare professionals even, that can really just meet this new world uh, as we all emerge from the pandemic. How predictable are you finding your results to be? I mean, if people look at your stock chart, they would think the story is one thing. But, you know, as we know, the markets have been all over the place lately. What kind of stability are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, put, put the markets aside because our business is both durable and highly predictable, right? When consumers are using GoodRx, we know their behavior. We know what it takes to bring them back into the pharmacy. Um, we're really, really proud of our results. And, and we just we know this behavior. We know consumers look most of the people who take who use GoodRx are to have chronic conditions. And so they're they're taking prescriptions on an ongoing basis. They're showing up at that pharmacy every month. We have a very reliable uh, revenue stream. And again, we're opening up new revenue streams and new ways to communicate with consumers as well. So we feel like our business is rock solid and just getting better. We're super, super excited about 2021. Yeah, some interesting additions to it with Healthy Nation video information from doctors and then, you know, RX uh, adding more on the prescription side. Doug Hirsch, co-founder, co-CEO. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. And that will do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.